draws our attention to the conflict between wealth and the acquisition of eternal happiness. And it reminds me of uh, a very uh, beautiful, powerful quote from the movie A Man for All Seasons, which is about the life of uh, St. Thomas More, uh, Lord Chancellor of England, who was beheaded by his one-time friend, Henry VIII. By show of hands, how many of you have seen A Man for All Seasons? Okay. The rest of you are far from the kingdom, and you need to watch this movie. It'll be good for your souls. Uh, <clears throat> so this is what St. Saint, Saint Thomas More, um, who's, who's being persecuted by Henry VIII, you know, he's about... Uh, to lose, uh, to lose his, set, his head, and his sister, uh, his, his daughter Margaret, is arguing with him, you know, trying to think of some way to get him to like, sort of give in and you know say what Henry wants him to say, and so he can get out of the Tower of London and and be freed. And uh, you know, Thomas More replies, "If we lived in a state where virtue was profitable, common sense would make us good, and." Greed would make us saintly. And we'd live like animals or angels in the happy land that needs no heroes. But since, in fact, we see that avarice, anger, envy, pride, sloth, lust, and stupidity commonly profit far beyond humility, chastity, fortitude, justice, and thought, we have to choose to be human at all. Why then, perhaps we must stand fast a little even at the risk of being heroes. I think there's sort of this powerful insight in that, that the way of virtue and the way of profit are rarely the same way, the same road. And that to give ourselves to one means to not give ourselves to, uh, to the other. I mean, I think it's something that I've... I've struggled with more than most most people in my own life, you know, because from a very young age, I loved money, like lots and lots of money. And the idea of having grotesque amounts of money was very appealing. Um, you know, and, uh, and I have very, <clears throat> have very expensive tastes. Um, now I try not to indulge them, but I still have them. And, you know, big, shiny, beautiful, pretty things just have this attraction. And, and so much of my energy and focus in life, including in college, was geared towards the career path that I thought would make me the most money, which was investment banking. And that, that drove me uh, for years. And, you know, to get off that track was, was very hard. It required a, a deep conversion because the sin was very deep and the desire was... was was really deep in me. And so when Jesus, you know, I, I think Jesus is calling me to this life of, you know, poverty, <clears throat> chastity, and obedience, you know, poverty, chastity, and obedience, it's like one thing is worse than the next. I mean, it's, good Lord, not me. Uh, <laughs> but, that, but I experienced this reality, you know, the, the reality of the rich young man, or the wannabe rich young man, um, who, had to, who had to make a choice. And I think part of it is, you know, recognizing what is it that that wealth uh, sort of offers us as, you know, what is what is the goods it's trying to substitute for, in a way. 
I think one of the the most sort of obvious uh, reasons to acquire wealth is for pleasure. You know, when you have lots of money, you can get things you enjoy. I remember when I was five, six years old, my family had just gone on some nice vacation somewhere, and I had figured out by this time that my father, who was a lawyer, got paid by the hour. <laughs> so one day I decided to have a little talk with Dad. I was like, Dad, you need to work more <laughs> so we can make more money so we can go on more nice vacations. <laughs> um, you know, and... Uh, so, so it's, it's, it's a mode for acquiring sort of pleasure. But on another level, and I think this is especially for you in college, for me in college, that it can be a substitute in a sense for knowledge, I think. You know, you're at Hope College, which is a liberal arts school. And what the liberal arts means is not that your, your professors are all liberals, although most of them are. But what liberal arts means is that it's free. It's a free art. It's not a practical art. It's not something you use to survive. You know, plumbing is not a liberal art. It's very practical, very useful, but it's not a liberal art. It's, it's the thing that you know and that you make money off of this, this kind of knowledge. But the liberal arts are supposed to be free. You know, it's the thing, stuff that you learn that isn't going to get you a big paycheck, you know, things like poetry and history, you know, um, literature, you know, uh, philosophy, theology, that certainly doesn't pay. Um, and yet I, I think it's very easy in, in the 21st century American context to think of and approach the, the liberal arts as a trade school. You're here to learn some stuff, to get a piece of paper that says you know things so that people will hire you and give you lots of money to do stuff. And, you know, when, when we say, oh, you know, did so-and-so do well in school, you know, we think, we, we, people ask that, do they really mean, did you learn a lot this semester? Or do they mean, did you get good grades? And, and good grades are important for said piece of paper and future jobs. But it doesn't mean you learned anything. I've gotten, you know, as my ethics professor in college said, college is the art of figuring out what you don't have to do. And there was a lot I didn't do. My GPA was okay, you know. So did well in school, but I think some of my classes I could have learned more. But I spent that time learning other things, so that's okay. But the thing is, if, you, if you're successful, if you make a lot of money, you get a good job, people can think you, you know things and you've done well. It's not, necessarily, it's not necessarily true. And finally, there's wealth as the source of eternal life. Now, nobody intellectually thinks that if I have a billion dollars in the bank, I'll live forever. But we are emotional creatures. And one of the things that, that has been found by psychological researchers is that one of the big attractions of acquiring gargantuan amounts of money is that it makes you feel invincible. And it's a way of staving off the angel of death. And so that's, that too is one of the attractions of lots of money. And you see how all of these things come into conflict with the gospel and 
with what Jesus uh, wants for our wants for our lives. And so, going with uh, just the last one uh, there, you know, wealth is a way of, of staving off death. I want to say a little more about that, just because what does that mean sort of practically for your life? And I think wealth, you know, one thing we could talk about is dollars in the bank, um, but there's also that sense of worldly prestige as the thing that satisfies, as our life legacy. You know, I'm going to be famous, you know, or whatever. I'm going to make some sort of big contribution. What does that, what does that mean? What does that look like? I saw a movie uh, last night. We had a uh, community movie night in the Priory, and uh, we watched the movie Hugo. How many of you have seen Hugo? Okay. A few more. About half. Okay. Um, we almost fell off our chairs at the... Uh, end credits when we found out that Martin Scorsese had directed this thing. Because there's no blood, there's no violence, and there's no nudity. Uh, so it, 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 but it's, it's a beautiful movie. It's, it's a beautifully shot movie and a very compelling acting. Um, and I really liked it. Except for the end. You know, it's one of those, I, I hate it when this happens. I read a book or I watch a movie and I, lo- I love everything about it until the end. It's like, Arr! And the thing, so, so Hugo is about this little orphan boy, Hugo, uh, meets this old guy, Ben Kingsley's the actor, um, uh, Papa Meliere as the character. And, um, you know, long story short, uh, Papa Meliere uh, was this famous director in the very, very, very early history of uh, movies. So he did like 500 short films, and this is before World War I, supposedly. So... That's the setting. And then the, the Great War comes and people's tastes have changed and the, the, you know, there's no longer a market so the studio shuts down and, and he kind of loses everything. You know, his, his films are seized you know, to pay his debts and they're melted down into um, uh, he, uh, fashion heels for ladies' shoes. Um, and so, and after this he just becomes sort of very depressed and you know, he runs this little toy shop but He's, he's this unhappy man. And what Hugo does is he takes this invention that, uh, that Papa Meliere had made, this automaton, brings it sort of back to life and sort of helps reconnect him and shows him that his movies haven't, haven't been forgotten. And so the idea is that he's going to try and fix Papa's heart. And so it ends with this happy ending. You know, the, some of these movies are found and they're shown and he gets this recognition and it seems to be this happy ending. Um, but I didn't think it was a happy ending. I didn't think it was a happy ending. Yeah, Papa, uh, Papa Melior, Ben Kingsley, he got what he wanted. He got his recognition. You know, he got all these, you know, big auditorium standing ovation for his beautiful work and this and that. And, and he got all these things and that sort of, the message was, you know, this is what gave him happiness. This was his, his legacy. But in a way, it seems to have missed the point. You know, this was a man who had a loving wife that he adored and who adored him. And she's right there by his side and it's, it seems like he doesn't notice her. And he's got this godchild who's living with them. And then he has Hugo now, whom, whom he ends up sort of adopting. Um, 
And that, in a sense, is, I think, happier that they have each other. But it just unsettled me, this focus on being a a famous movie director, being the sort of, being remembered, being the satisfying thing. It's not going to last. It's not going to last. And it's not the sort of thing that I think can comfort us when we are facing our own, the end of our own lives. I think we need something more than that. So for you, something that I want to give you to think about is not a question of what career you're going to choose, what job you want to do, but how do you think about it? In the scheme of your life, in the importance of things, of what's really going to matter, where, where does it fit in the pyramid? And how important is this? Versus your relationships with your friends, with your family, with God? Where does it fit in to all of that? Because, you know, having a good career, giving yourself to it, you can do wonderful and beautiful things. But it has to be within the context of the whole. And that reminded me of another, another quote from the movie Man of All Seasons, um, which is one of my favorites. And it comes early on, and Thomas More is, is talking to a man, Richard Rich, um, who ends up being his betrayer. He denounces him. He's the, he's the key witness against him in his uh, trial for high treason. And Richard Rich ends up becoming Lord Chancellor of England, you know, and uh, dies peacefully in his bed. And he's this kind of protege of of Moore and ends up going off on his own way, his own way of, you know, betrayal and self-seeking. But early on, Moore says to him, why not be a teacher? You'd be a fine teacher, perhaps a great one. And Richard Rich says, if I was, who would know it? And Moore says, you your pupils, your friends, God. Not a bad public man. And Richard Rich chooses, you know, like the rich man in the gospel, chooses another way. And yet, I think, not I think, we see in the gospel Jesus encouraging us to put first things first and how we think about our life, our careers, the work that we do. He says everyone who uh, has given up uh, houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands uh, will have a hundred times with persecutions and eternal life in the age to come. And that's the legacy that, that really lasts. That's the legacy that really lasts. You know, it's something that I you know, think about in in my own life, you know, what's going to be the legacy. Um, I have no children. I have no plans to have any children. Uh, (laughs) I hope to God I never have any children. Um, So what, you know, what is, what is the legacy? And, you know, just personally, as as I think of my own life, it's not, it's not even going to be about the people who, remember me, you know, and the good things I've tried to do for them. 
I think the thing that, in a way, is most satisfying is the gift itself, to be able to give, to be able to have done things for people, is the most satisfying. It's wonderful to be loved and to thank and to be remembered. But there's something about just being grateful to give, to have a chance, you know, to help people in, in some small way, um, that I think is the satisfying thing. You know, because it's a thing that nothing can, no one can take away from me. You know, if everybody at Hope College suddenly got Alzheimer's and, and didn't even remember my name, you know, I could, I could still remember. I could still remember you. I could still remember, you know, the love that I've had for others. And God remembers it too. And the real hope for me is that at the end of my life, uh, at the end of our lives, that we'll get to see each other again. You know, that parting is not final, that death doesn't win, and that love really is the one and eternal thing. And it's the thing worth giving up everything else for.